Welcome to episode 192 of the Ski Podcast, and thanks for joining us, listener. Today, we're going to be finding out about the beautiful Dolomites in Italy, chatting about the golden days of ski trips by coach, and discussing how the UK market is looking this winter. Now, my name is Ian Martin. I'd like to introduce my guests today, both are first-timers on the podcast. Firstly, I'd like to welcome Lou from Inspired Italy. Hi, Lou. How are you? Hi, I'm very good, thank you. Should I be saying Comistai? <laughs> si, bene, grazie. Because you are in Italy at the moment? <laughs> I am. I'm, in, I'm on right on the Umbria-Tuscany border, heading to the Dolomites next week. Right. Okay. Exciting. Right. Well, we're going to be talking about the Dolomites a little bit later on. Uh, secondly, though, I'd like to introduce Dan Fox, who's owner of the UK tour operator Ski Weekends. Hi, Dan. How are you? Good morning, Ian. I'm great, thanks. Here I am in not quite so sunny today, Saint-Gervais, which is great because there's a bit of cloud coming in and there's snow in the air. So uh, very promising. I did not know that you were out on the Alps as well. I thought you were going to tell me you're in the UK somewhere. You're making me feel very, you know, I'm here based in, in Brighton on a fairly uh, dull uh, autumn day. And you two are both overseas. You are um, uh, in the Alps at the moment, Dan. Can I ask you, when did you last ski or snowboard? I last skied, I was trying to work it out, I think it's the 24th of April. We had our end of season bash for the staff, the UK team, come over to Avoria and we stay in the chalets. They all have a good ski round and, and they went home and um, we didn't. We strapped on our touring yeah. skis and did a couple of days ski touring, which was blissful because, of course, the piece was shut. So we had them mounted to ourselves. We had great snow. Yeah, it's soft in the afternoon, but lovely bit of ski touring in the mornings and enjoyed some sunshine. Nice. And what about yourself then, Lou? Was that at the end of the season in the Dolomites? Uh, pretty much. Our season's not as long, obviously, as where Dan is. So um, I last skied 30th of March and it was actually a ski test day. We were testing skis for this coming season and it, we went with the uh, head shape uh, EV8s, I think they are. And that's what we're going to be using both the ski leaders and our clients this season. Okay, well, those test days are really important and, and trying new uh, kit. I now have, thinking about, you know, when you last skied and snowboarded, regular listeners will know I was out in Zermatt for a, a, just a day of skiing back in August. But I now have, as of recording today on the 23rd of November, 24 days to go till I'll be skiing in Les Arc if, uh, if all goes well on the 17th of December. So I'm getting excited about that. Uh, Dan referred to the uh, snow situation. Um, you know, there's, they, it's quite cold in the outs, there's snow coming in. We've been through, you know, a couple of cycles since uh, our last uh, podcast. A lot of snow came down, particularly higher up. It got a bit warm and there's been quite a lot of rain in different places in the outs. But I do have a few snow reports just to drop in from some of our regular contributors just now. We've got Alex in Courcheval, uh, Bethany, who went to Verbier, and Possibly, depending how things go, Dave will be reporting from Glacier 3000 and waiting for his report to come in yet. So I might edit that out if he doesn't uh, come up with it. Hi, Ian. Alex from 150 Days of Winter reporting from Valterin for their pre-opening opening on the 18th of November. As is fairly normal, Valterin is one of the first ski resorts to open in France. In this case, they opened a week earlier than normal. Despite only a handful of lifts and a couple of pieces open, the snow coverage was good. Weather wasn't the best, with snow showers at the top of Peckley and drizzle at the lower lifts. Throw in questionable visibility and flat light, and you might think that skiing was a nightmare. However, it turned into an epic day and a good start to the 2024 winter season. 
Using ski maths as I'd already purchased in my early bird Three Valley season pass, it was in essence a great free day skiing. Thanks to some torrential rain in the region, more snow is needed everywhere and thankfully is forecast next week. And on that, I'm counting down to the 2nd of December and the opening of Courcheval and Meribel. Hi Ian, it's Bethany phoning in with the snow report. Now I'm based um, in France uh, in the Mont Blanc Valley, not too far from Chamonix and Saint-Gervais. But last weekend I went skiing in Verbier in Switzerland, which is actually included on, in our lift pass, which is great news. Now after a huge dump of snow where we saw videos and photos of everyone skiing epic powder, we had a lot of rain really quite high up, up to just under 3,000. So I was nervous that all the snow would have been away but as it turns out it hadn't and I had a great day skiing in Verbier uh, they've got a couple of uh, runs open one of them was a really long run down to what is called the James Blunt chair I believe um, and there was good coverage on the piece um, a little bit still off the piece but you know not epic powder but it gives a good base and I think the high results like Verbier and Teen are going to be skiing well for the next few weeks before the start of the real winter when fingers crossed we'll have some big dumps of snow uh, the forecast is looking a lot colder in the next few days and I believe there's going to be a little bit of snow uh, on Saturday so yeah um, it's feeling like winter so everyone get their their snow dance shoes on do a little snow dance and then fingers crossed for a for an epic winter thanks Ian bye Hi Ian, it's Dave Burrows from Snow Pro Ski School, your friendly English speaking ski school based in the Port de Soleil and Villa. That noise you can hear in the background is the turning of the chairlift uh, at Glacier 3000. I'm up here today, it is a beautiful blue sky but there is loads of wind. Uh, so we've got this kind of uh, local wind that we have, it's called the bees and uh, the bees just generates like loads and loads of high wind blows all the clouds away which is pretty cool because that's been it's been pretty gloomy but uh it's a bit windy up here so uh conditions are good uh snow is excellent here on the glacier last weekend i was in uh, verbier and uh, verbier is now open on weekends all the way down to ruinette i was a bit surprised about that because it's quite early in the season for them to do it but uh conditions there were excellent also um so we've got a couple of really good local options uh and here then in uh let me see in, in our region, Vaisona is open. They've got one piece open, I think. And then you go further up the valley towards like Sasfe and Zermatt. And obviously those guys are open uh, as they are most of the year. So um, all good. Resorts opening up. Lots going on. People skiing. It's very busy up here today. And uh, yeah, it's cool. There's like loads of ski teams and, and uh, schools and, and various other bits and pieces. And me uh, doing loads of kind of, I don't know. I'm just doing a few drills, just trying to get my balance back after the summer. And um, it doesn't hurt to do a few low-speed turns here and there just to uh, just to get yourself going. So all good. Um, I'm surprised you even talk to us anymore now that you're speaking to mega stars like Bodie Miller and stuff like that. But uh, uh, keep up the great work with what you're doing in the podcast. I hope you and all of the ski po- uh, ski podcast listeners have had an amazing summer. And uh, hopefully, I'll speak to you soon with more snow updates. See you soon. Bye. Uh, right, while we're uh, dropping those snow reports in, uh, Dan mentioned to me uh, something else to make me jealous again. Uh, just uh, uh, tell us where you're going next weekend. 
Well, on Sunday, we're planning on going across to Verbier to get our first turns of the season in. We were talking to Warren Smith this morning. He said they've had two or three powder days already. Like the rest of the Alps, it's been affected by the warmer temperatures and a bit of rain, but it's snowing again. The snow dew on Friday and Saturday over there. So I think we're going to go and make some tracks on Sunday. Cool. Well, uh, that's very exciting. We had Robin reporting from Verbier before the list had even opened. He was he was ski touring and uh, regular listeners will know Warren Smith. I've got a special episode uh, interview with him. I also skied with him in Verbier back in uh, March. So that's good. Uh, this seems like a good point to remind you, listener, that you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersportrent.com and use the code ski podcast. You get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire uh, in France, Austria and Switzerland. And in fact, one of our listeners told me he managed to get a discount in in Andorra as well, which I didn't even know you could do. Uh, and you can make it even simpler. You don't need to use that code. You can actually just take a link in the show notes and your basket will be automatically reduced. And I wanted to thank all of our listeners today who have actually used that code because it really does uh, uh, help us. So if you want to support the podcast, uh, book your ski hire within support and use the code ski podcast at checkout or take the link in the show notes. Now, two little bits of news. Um, from a World Cup racing point of view, I guess uh, the highlight is that Dave Riding uh, just came fourth in the slalom in, in Gurgle, Obergurgle, where most people would know it. He was 100th of a second off the podium. That is as close as you can get uh, to being on the podium or sharing it with someone else. They, um, so, you know, brilliant work, Dave. Hopefully he'll be at, uh, on the podium again. Also World Cup-wise, uh, Zermatt, and uh, Chavinia have just had unbelievably uh, uh, bad luck. Uh, you might recall, listeners, you know, I did a special episode about the speed opening downhill events that were taking place over there. They would be or would have been the first ever uh, cross-border uh, World Cup races. It's a downhill race. It was starting on the Zermatt side of the glacier, finishing in Chavinia. Last year, they were cancelled because there wasn't enough snow. This year, there was plenty of snow. But high winds over two weekends meant that all four downhills were cancelled. Uh, so that really is unbelievably uh, bad luck. And, uh, you know, it will remain to see um, you know, what happens, uh, you know, whether the uh, FIS will continue to schedule those for the uh, future. Another bit of news, if you listened to episode 190, you would have heard Kendra from Sunshine Village. She actually got back in contact with me after that podcast and said that for listeners of the podcast, she can offer a special uh, rate on a ski and stay package at their hotel. I think it's 20% off the best rate. I'm going to put a link in the show notes about that. Right. Let's move on from Canada to uh, Italy. Uh, Lou, I was very excited to have you on the show. I am lucky enough to have been to lots of different ski resorts. I don't exactly know how many uh, there've been, but it might be in the hundreds. But I have to embarrassingly admit that I have never been to the uh, Dolomites. And I feel like I've really uh, missed out. Dan's got a shock of uh, horror uh, <laughs> on uh, his face. I have to say, yeah. absolutely stunning. It's regarded as one of the most beautiful uh, uh, you know, areas uh, in the world. Uh, Lou, do you want to just maybe for the listener's benefit, give us an idea of geographically, you know, how it fits in and, and whether even the Dolomites are part of the Alps. Yeah, they're not really part part of the Alps. So they're the northeast part of Italy. So if you imagine the traditional boot, the Italian boot, we're on the top right, top right, right butted up against Austria. And it really is the most beautiful, stunning landscape. It's it's it's. It's hard to believe it and it's hard to explain it, but it is just 
breathtaking it's lots of wows when you you know you get to the top of the lift and you go wow and then you get to the top of another lift and you're at the top of the marmalade and you can see everything and you go wow it's it really is you have to come in definitely come well, on, the safari. It, it, is on my, it is on my list um i think possibly one of the limiters i did look into it this year is i generally tend i uh, prefer to travel by by train um Typically, what you know, where would you fly into? Because a lot of different access points, aren't there, into the Dolomites? Yeah, it's it's really easy to get to. So we use Innsbruck and Verona for our safaris, uh, but most of our intercontinental clients they come to Munich, Venice, Milan, and those are really well connected by train. I mean, you can come to the Dolomites by train. We do get uh, people coming on the train. You can even come on a Flixbus if you want. <laughs> via Amsterdam so it's it's really easy to get to I absolutely promise you and by train I like I do have some friends who went out to one of the Dolomites resorts it might have been in Tyrol. is that still in the Dolomites Sud Tyrol? Abs- absolutely North Italy yeah. Sud Tyrol. that's where we are yeah and they they flew in and out of uh, Venice and you know added on a, a kind of like let's say a city break uh, uh, there as well a lot of those how, how long is your transfer from places like Verona and uh, Venice so Verona, it's it's two hours, and Venice. What we would always suggest to people, Venice is four hours, but we would always suggest to people come on the train, get the train to Bolzano, and then that's just thirty minutes. And we have these fabulous trains. I'm sure you know this, the Frecci Rossa high speed train. So and so such good value, really fantastic value trains in Europe. Yeah, well, if anyone watched Race Across the World, uh, they'll they'll know that those Italian trains are a great value for money. But you know, talking about thinking about the 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 Dolomiti Super Ski, which is the name of the area. If people think of the three valleys, uh, you know, as being the the whole of the region there, the Dolomiti Super Ski is a super large area that covers a lot of different resorts. Yeah, and and absolutely, the Dolomites isn't a resort; it's a big area. So it's. Um, if you think it's twice the size of New York, um, it's 350,000 acres. So t- 1,200 kilometres is is always the, the figure that you see. So that's 1,200 com- kilometres of connected skiing, 750 miles, 29 miles across. It is huge. It is a huge area. All on one ski pass. Dolomiti Super Ski. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a point of a, a debate, isn't it? Because 1,200 kilometres. Now, I know... So that's all on the same ski pass because the Three Valleys is, you know, billed as being the largest skier in the world. And I think from uh, memory, we're talking about 600 kilometers of piece there. But I guess they're all interconnected. If you wanted to ski all of Dolomiti Super Ski, you'd have to kind of get buses between different resorts. Is that how that would work? For one or two, absolutely. Or a horse toe on, as you might have heard, we've we've got a horse toe in the Dolomites. Um, But it's it's connected valleys. So one valley will be connected to another valley. So Alpe di Susi Valgadena is connected to the Alta Badia. Alta Badia is connected to Araba. So that's how it works. But I'm, I honestly don't know why we can't claim to be the biggest ski area in the world, but it can only be that very occasionally you have to take a, a, a bus ride of 20 minutes or something. That can be the only reason. So when people talk about the Celeronda, what, what is the Celeronda in the context of the Dolomites then? 
Yeah, it's its most it's its most famous thing, the Celeronda. So the the Cellar Massif is just a big rock right in the centre. I mean, a huge rock, right in the centre of the Dolomites, and the Celeronda goes round it, left or right, anticlockwise or clockwise, and it's something that everybody sort of wants to do, and it's definitely worth doing. So we think of the Celeronda as the circle line in, in, on the London Tube. <laughs> Right. So we use we yeah I don't, we, we use it like that, and um, the Celeronda ca- can get a little busy. Most of the Dolomites is not busy. There's only two sort of places that get busy, and that's the Celeronda, because people have heard about it. It's really well signposted, fantastically, both left and right, um, and occasionally the Marmalada gets a little busy, but most of the time then it's just not busy in the Dolomites. Um, definitely do the Celeronda. Avoid it on a Thursday or Friday because that gets a little busy. People sort of build up to doing it, and actually you don't need to, but it's the way people think when they come on a week's ski holiday. And and how long would that? I I I know you don't want to kind of like a you know completely focus on the Celeronda as a, as a thing to do, but it's something you can do in a day, right? Oh, absolutely. You could do it twice in a day. So depending which way you go around, um, you could do it in three hours and and up to six hours. We say to people, allow yourself a day to do it so you can stop for lunch and photographs and stuff. Remind me what resorts you'd be passing through then if you you did that. So you're going to be going through Corvara, the Val Gardena, Araba, Alta Badia. So you're doing the main sort of four big hitters, if you like. So it's four valleys, four passes you're doing for the Celeron. Yeah, and those those are the most famous resorts. Did you say Cortina in that list? I don't think so. No, no, not not on the Celeronda. But the but Cortina is, is in famous. Dolomites as well, right? Oh, absolutely. It, it, you know, and uh, depending who you talk to, they call that the Queen of the, the Queen of the Dolomites, or the Mar- yeah. we call the Marmalada the Queen, the Queen of the Dolomites. But absolutely, and Cortina is a beautiful, beautiful place to ski. It's also going to be coming into focus because the next Winter Olympics, when we come around to that, 2026, is going to be Milan Cortina, isn't it? It is indeed. And they're getting ready and they've put it, we've got new infrastructure going in in Cortina, the really improving accommodation in the village. Now it's looking really good and it's such great skiing. It has some of the more technical skiing, I think, Cortina. In the Dolomites. Okay. Do, do you happen to know where the different, uh, you know, events are going to be taking place then? Because they always have like some, let's for, say, for example, the women's alpine in one place and the men's alpine in another place. I don't have, I don't know all, all of the details yet. I think they're going to use certainly both sides of Cortina, both for, the Faloria side, the north side, as well as uh, as the Tofana side uh, for some of the downhills. And then you're going to be going to Milan and I think Trento for some of the, the other things, the bobsleigh, although we've still got our James Bond bobsleigh in Cortina. It's looking a little sad now. But um, yeah, definitely both sides of Cortina. Yeah. And um I think another thing that um, you know the Dolomiti Super Ski, the uh, the big area, likes to kind of promote and sell itself on is it's got really good snowmaking over there. Is that right? Absolutely, best in Europe apparently. Um, so, uh, and we call it program snow. They they call it program snow. Um, so you've got some extraordinary figure like six thousand snow cannons, and ninety seven percent of the Dolomites is covered by snow cannons. So. 
it used to have, I'm sure you know this, a sort of reputation as not being snowshore. And we actually get our snow from the south. Our weather comes from the south. Um, so that's why there was this big investment. So I just had a quick check on the snow can uh, on the web uh, cams this morning, and there was certainly a lot of snow cannons going when I had a look. And so that at this time of year, regardless of what's happening with real snow, and we're getting a good bit of snow, and Saturday we're going to get a good dump of snow there too, but they're still making snow. The other thing to know about the Dolomites is they groom every single one of the 1,200 kilometres every single night, and that helps keep the snow. So last year when a lot of the Alps weren't having uh, great conditions, we had great conditions. Yeah, it's interesting how the different resorts, they all have, you know, the, the Dolomiti Super Ski might not be saying, oh, we're the biggest ski area in the world, but they certainly are saying, oh, we've got the best snow coverage. And I uh, didn't know that before about grooming all the uh, slopes. And, you know, what we're talking about here is skiing uh, on piste. I guess I mentioned the Olympics, uh, you know, coming up over in uh, uh, Milan Cortina. And one of the things that's really interesting to me is that they're going to be introducing ski mountaineering for the first time, which I think, you know, the host nation can always pick a new sport and they, i think the italians are probably pretty good at ski mounted everything which is why they've picked it we're a totally on piste experience so we are riding the lifts and using and using the the, the piece we're not off piste at all so the ski mountaineering there's there's lots of good opportunities for that in the dolomites but actually off piste stuff we don't get that much snow so if you are a true backcountry a skier i don't think the dolomites is is really the place for you it's a definitely an on-piste adventure our ski safari started um because tim uh hudson met um a friend of his for a drink when i think we were doing our second season uh in the in the dolomites and he he went for a drink with ricardo and ricardo was mar- is married to a local girl he actually met her in the ski pass office and he was telling Tim that he'd just come back from this amazing trip. This is about 15 years ago. And he'd, his father-in-law had said to him, oh, Ricardo, come on, pack a backpack. And we're going off for a few days. I'm going to introduce you to some of my friends. And they literally packed a couple of backpacks and set off. And they stayed in the mountain refugees, the refugees. So he went all over places he'd never been, even though he was living in the Dolomites. We talked about it when Tim came back and we just thought, that sounds such fun. And we did it with a group of friends, five of us. Uh, one of those friends is actually sk- still ski leading for us all these years later. And we started doing that with friends and friends of friends. And then it just developed into a business. It wasn't really a thing when we started a ski safari, if you like. You're staying in, in refuges overnight, but everything's on peace. Surely some of those refuges must uh, need getting to. Uh, yep, but you you get to the by lift. There's one refuge that we actually get to by snowcat um, or, or skidoo, depending on how much snow, or even helicopter on one or two occasions. But, yeah, everything you, we're, getting, we're riding to – by lift or we're skiing to and they're on the top of the mountains it's quite it's quite a thing it's a wonderful thing i'm re- i'm guessing the refugees are kind of similar to the you know that which i've experienced in france and switzerland it's a kind of more of a, a dorm type of a environment uh, rather than luxurious let's say not not anymore when when we first started you're right it was all hairy blankets and you know bowls of pasta and now it's en suite en suite rooms and power showers so 
it's changed enormously, even in even in 12, 15 years. It's a massive change. Right. That is completely different. I mean, there are a couple of places, uh, you know, that I've been to in the outs. I guess it depends kind of what altitude you're at and who they're uh, catering for. But uh, ensuite rooms in a refuge uh, sounds quite, uh, quite rare to me. And what happens if someone's going on one of your, you know, ski safaris? What happens to their luggage? But, you know, do they have to haul that as well on your in your back? Yeah, so we we absolutely are uh, we're self supporting, if you like. So we provide everybody with a backpack, a Vaudi twenty two liter backpack. You don't need it. You don't need much with you. You don't even need a pair of shoes because once you once you're there, there's nowhere to go. You just need a pair of decent rubber slippers, and that's it. So you don't need very little. I absolutely promise you the the refugees have fabulous beds or you know toiletries towels all of those things that you might be a little bit worried about and i used to be one of those people who took two ski two ski jackets and two pairs of skis on a ski whole day and now i'm the i'm totally the opposite i take as little as possible yeah, I mean, we've had these conversations uh, previously when we talked about, uh, you know, doing the out route and uh, ski touring about how how little you can get away with when you're uh, uh, going uh, skiing. So that can obviously affect, you know, uh, how much taking with you. Um, I noticed as well that uh, you mentioned the icon pass on the uh, website. Uh, are you finding more people coming from the, the States because you can get that free skiing in, in the Dolomites area? Yeah, definitely. We've I think we've we've probably about equal with with Brits this year, our Americans, and it absolutely is to do with the Icon Pass. It's a fantastic thing, you know. You it, it's a turnkey thing if you like. So you just rock up to the lift with your Icon Pass, uh, and it, the readers accept it. You don't need to swap it for anything, and the full Icon Pass gives you seven days in the Dolomites. So that is brilliant, as far as I can see. Yeah, it's so interesting these passes. Well, Lou, that is that is uh, great. You've you've whetted my appetite for the uh, Dolomites even more than it was uh, already. And you know, I I know I keep saying this on the podcast, but you know, my bucket list just gets uh, gets bigger and bigger. I will work out how to get there or when I'm going to get there uh, at some point. But that's brilliant. Thanks very much. Uh, if it's all right with you, I'm going to turn to Dan now. You know, Dan, we were chatting at Listex, which I mentioned before the uh, trader event uh, held in London. I think it was last month. Uh, uh, now and one of the things we, we talk about sustainability and we talked about coach travel which not many people kind of take these days i think there's maybe one uh, company uh, offering it but ski weekends that you own that actually started as a coach specialist business i think is that right how, how did you get involved with it oh crikey there's two stories in there um harris holidays was a coach operator doing classic holidays out in the uk around the uk Frankly, all that you expect of coach holidays back in the 80s. And Frank and his brother in the 80s, 1986 was their first ski trip. And Frank basically went, I've got an empty coach. I've got 18 mates. I want to go to the Alps. And let's see if we can sell some empty seats. And it went rather well. It went so well that two years later, we bought a hotel in Bridlebain at the bottom of the Trois-Vallées. And that business trundled along um, in quite a... A uh, very classic old world ski industry way where the coach drivers turned up and went to help in the kitchen. And you might find them serving in the bar in the evenings, which, of course, these days, you just no way would any of that happen. But they ran really successfully for years and years doing weeks and weekends. In fact, when I, uh, when my ski industry life started in 1989, so three years later, I went overseas to do one season. 
and then went home in 2003. So quite a long time. And ended up taking over Ski Weekends in 2007, at which point in time it just started to dabble in the flight market. But the coach program was about two, two and a half thousand passengers a year. It, it evolved quite a lot. You know, the coaches are much more modern and they weren't what you think of um, for those days of uh, those frightful school or university trips. Um, I could bore you for half an hour on how exciting a triaxle 14.2 meter coach is, but I won't. I mean, I, I did go out uh, by coach a few times back in the uh, 80s university uh, time and also uh, other trips as well. Not with uh, Harris Holidays, I recall. So, But how how did they, the latter version, the, the, the kind of 21st century coaches differ then? Well, the biggest difference from a passenger point of view was that the seats reclined to 120 degrees, which is as far back as you need to go. And if you were six foot two, six foot three, your knees and feet didn't touch the seat from. Yeah, that's kind of all you need to know. It was an overnight trip through France, offering weeks and three day short breaks. It's about 11 hour journey through France. So it worked pretty efficiently. And of course, at the time, we were touting the fact that the coach is something like 15 to 20 times greener than flying. But the real reason, truthfully, most people were taking coach was it was typically 100, 150 pounds cheaper per person than flying because we didn't charge for the bags. Your bags went on the coach. Um, you got on the coach. And the other thing that people really loved about it is it went from the London Victoria coach station to a hotel, two pickups in UK. And that was it. No messing around with airports, no waiting for flights, no parking your car, none of the stress associated with all of that. You turned to a Victoria coach station, you got on the coach and you got off at your hotel. When I took over, we grew it and we actually added in Chamonix and Morzine and we topped out at pushing towards 5,000 guests a year going by coach. But I guess rather sadly, if I'm honest, because I kind of lament our coach days, the price on flights got lower and lower and the price of coach because the drivers now had to have two or three drivers depending on the route, the fuel, the tolls got higher and higher. So that differentiation in price got eroded to the point where for an early booking, it was cheaper to fly. And for a late booking, you might be saving £50. So the price incentive wasn't there. We, we did reach a point in um, 2016, we stopped coach. And we were doing about 1,200 passengers then. But the truth was, it just wasn't economically viable. It was just to the point where it was simply breaking even and getting worse. So you still had 1,200 people going out, you know, each winter in 2016. I've, I have a feeling there's probably like a, a real core of skiers who that is the way that they want to travel. If you put on a coach now, you'd Ian, probably like book it up and sell it straight away, right? Ian, we still have a core of people that contact us every year who are our diehard coach customers who still haven't got the message that we're not doing coach this year. <laughs> um, the, the truth is, however, that most of those passengers want to pay the bargain prices that aren't really viable anymore. Um, but, and really importantly, I do think there is a place for coach. And every year now, I look very seriously at reintroducing coach. The truth is the cost of the coach running at a decent capacity makes it comparable with flight now. There's, by the time you put your bags on an aircraft, it's not that cheap. I do really think and would really like to reintroduce coach back into ski. And I think it'll come in the next couple of years. Right. OK, that's interesting uh, to hear. But you said before that ski weekends or Harris holidays were offering ski weekends by coach. That's a Correct. lot of travelling time for what two or three days skiing right 
Are you ready for this explanation? Five o'clock London, Victoria, Thursday night. Get into resort, eight, nine o'clock Friday morning. Ski Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Get on the coach Sunday night. Get back to London, Victoria, six or seven o'clock in the morning. Go straight to the office. One day off work, three days skiing. And that's what a large percentage of our people did. When you explain it like that, you know, it, it sounds uh, great. I guess if you're the sort of person who can sleep on a coach, I think that's probably the clincher, isn't it? If you can sleep on a coach and you can deal with that, then that can work. Eh? From my if, recollection of my university days, uh, no, mainly yeah. we slept because we drunk too much uh, prior to that. Ian, Dan's <laughs> waving his arms violently. It, it's, it's, it's nothing like those. I'm going to be a little bit of a geek. Basically, those coaches would take 69 people. A coach now that is over a metre and a half longer, we would put max 53 in. The leg room is totally different. We used to promote the the Thursday night out as a social night with your friends. Watch a couple of movies, bring a bottle of wine and a couple of beers. We didn't encourage excess drinking on the coach for very obvious reasons. But basically, enough to anaesthetise you. Pass out, (laughs) do the journey on the way there. And on the way home, after three hard days skiing, We'd put a movie on at six o'clock and I'd almost guarantee you by seven o'clock, the whole coach would be asleep. <laughs> In fact, we, when you say that, it reminds me of the old uh, snow train where people, you know, prior to Eurostar and people used to do the same sort of thing as you would be traveling by coach. You'd come over to Calais, you know, via the ferry and then get the train from there. And I think on the ferry, you know, you could stock up on really cheap beer. So people would get these slabs of beer and presumably stick them underneath the coach or in the case of the train. You know, I'd, I'd pick up these people from Moutier, you know, on a Saturday morning and they'd be bladdered already, you know. at uh, And we were picking them up at like six or seven in the morning or something. And then they'd get their luggage out, which included all of this beer they're going to take up to the mountain. Yes, giving me shivers thinking about it now (laughs) okay well things have changed you know a lot now ski weekends you said you know you stopped doing the coach back in 2016 you know maybe it will uh, come back but you know you're offering a lot of different holidays now and i thought it'd be quite interesting to kind of get an insight into you know any trends that you've seen and what people are looking for you know for this winter or how things have changed a little bit i think i've got to start by saying ski weekends the name is our greatest asset and our greatest folly Um, people automatically assume strange enough that we only do ski weekends um the truth is we just do flexible stays about half our business includes a saturday night and they're typically stays of three or four nights but right. the rest of the business are flexible stays. And what we are seeing, you know, we see a lot more people taking midweek breaks because of flexible working. They can do Monday to Friday or Monday to Thursday, which suits them much better, cheaper flights, quieter routes, less traffic on the roads. It's a cheaper break. And also, you know, with our weeks and nine, 10 day slots, people avoid the weekends where the flights are so much more expensive. So ski weekends does a lot more than weekends. Um, and in terms of trends, I guess probably the biggest shift is the length of the stays is growing. What we don't do, we're allergic to Saturdays. We don't do Saturday Saturday. Um, we do over 40 resorts. I think there's nearly 48 resorts now around seven European countries. Um, it is majority by flight. We do do discounts for self-drive and trains where we include transfers because we have we have 10 chalets we run in France, but they are, they represent less than half the programme. And what about destinations? Are you seeing people, a shift in destinations that people are, are looking for? Have you seen that, you know, this winter or even over the last few winters? 
I think it's it's quite interesting, given, you know, we all acknowledge that last winter was not the best snow winter we've seen for a long time. Um, it perhaps wasn't a disaster. The press has said it was, but it wasn't great. Um, there is a tendency for people to want to go high. But what we're increasingly seeing is people actually moving away from some of the big super areas, the Trois-Vallées, Vastachilles, um, and actually wanting to discover. Now, I think some of that's a product of the ageing ski market, where actually the males are less important than the experience and the culture. Um, and, you know, lose comments about the Stella Ronda. I completely get it. Beautiful place, great food, wonderful cultural trip to do. We're seeing a growth in places like Leger, which is actually France's fourth largest ski area, 400 kilometres, is, is the evasion ski area, um, which is why we moved here for the winter. Um, you know, there are no tour operators that come here apart from us and people retreats that do apartments. Um, and it's a lovely, lovely cultural area with people who are local. Um, so you get a proper local experience. The lift system is surprisingly modern. In fact, better than certain super areas I could mention. Um, and it's a great ski area. So people are looking for more. The other side of that is I've got real interest in Norway. Um, people going into Bergen, doing a night in Bergen, experience the city, which is fab. It rains a bit, but apart from that, it's great. And then getting the amazing train journey through to Voss or Mechdalen. Great ski areas, great cultural experience. So much else to do on whether you go for three days or a week or longer. There's so many different opportunities there to go and discover. Uh, you mentioned Saint-Gervais. Are you in Saint-Gervais-les-Bains? The the the, the side of the village it's a little bit higher up because if you you know when I come by train you come into Lafaye and then you got uh, Le Bain a bit further up Le Bain's where you get the ski lifts from. That's absolutely right. But I'll tell you what's interesting, I don't know if you know, but for actually in progress at the moment is the construction of the new lift that's coming from Lafaye direct. So you'll be able to get the TGV from Paris to Lafaye, get on a gondola and come straight into the centre of Saint Gervais. If you stayed on the land, it would take you up to Bete, Betex with, with, in English, yeah. um, which is really <laughs> the bottom ski area. And and just uh, uh, clarify, because I have skied, uh, you know, uh, over in that way, and I know a few people who live in the town. There's quite a big British kind of population in Saint Gervais, right? People who've moved that have been priced out of Chamonix, perhaps. And it's a much smaller town. It's much more cultural, I guess. Saint Gervais is not cheap. I would say people come here because they want something a little bit more authentic and cultural. I love Chamonix. I lived there for seven years. But it's an international melting pot that is relentlessly busy. It's not a cute place to live. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I obviously am a massive fan of uh, Chamonix, but I haven't uh, lived there, you know, one one summer but uh you know so advantages of that what about i wanted to ask you another question you mentioned that you run i think you said that you run a few chalets as well but you know evidently you're still in that chalet market there are way fewer mm. chalets than there used to be you know post brexit and the, the legal aspect uh, side of things is that you believing a bit like the coach travel that is a certain type of person who's always going to book a chalet holiday okay i mean the stats are quite simple pre brexit pre-covid over 50% of the British skiers that went with the tour operator stayed in the chalet. Now, it's half that. And a lot of that, you're completely correct, is because of the impact of Brexit. And then COVID was kind of the, the double blow of that because of all the commitment, of the financial commitment in the chalets and what happened to the season. It was very difficult pill to swallow for many. Um, for us, we've always paid uh, properly the French through the French system for a long time. 
Um, so the financial change was actually relatively small. The chalet market still has a place and it works incredibly well for flexible stays because it takes away, if you're in an apartment, you've got a shop, you've got to think about it, you've got to try and make it work. And yet you get the social side um, of staying with a whole different group of people. And whilst we do sell chalets as sole occupancy, we sell the majority of them by the room. In fact, our new chalet in Leger will sleep up to 38 people. Yeah. So it's it really is an hour from the airport, incredibly social. Um, we've even got a couple of solo weekends in there where we're trying to get people to pair up. Would you call that a club hotel, 38 uh, <laughs> people, or a chalet, a chalet hotel? You know, it's larger than your typical chalet, right? Yeah, I mean, we have another one that's 26 beds, but uh, it's a really good question. And we were very, very tempted to call it a club hotel or a club chalet. And we had a lot of head scratching about whether the market would perceive it. And you'll get this comment. Um, we looked at the SEO and there was no merit in it. So we stuck with chalet. <laughs> That's really interesting, uh, Dan. Uh, thanks so much for that. Now, actually, I've got something to drop in, uh, another recording to drop into the podcast just now, because at the Birmingham Ski Show back in October, I bumped into uh, Eddie the Eagle Edwards, and I had a little chat with him. And I should say at this point that I there is an episode, listener, you can listen to you know, a much longer interview with uh, Eddie, which is one of the most enjoyable interviews uh, I've done. But I actually interviewed him while he was on a holiday organised by you guys. And uh, he was at the show on your stand. Is he going to be doing stuff with you again this winter? Well, Eddie's been skiing with us, or specifically with our guests, for about, I think it's nine years. Um, and has been involved with all sorts of different charity things we've done. In total, we raised close on £60,000 for children in need um, by being part of Carfest as well, which Eddie attended and we strapped him to the top of a van and sent him around the racetrack. But Eddie's a superstar. He was going to be skiing with us this year. He normally stays for sort of 10 days, skis with three different groups of guests. But this year, you may or may not be aware, but he is dancing on ice which he's very excited about because, truthfully, I know Eddie's been hankering after doing it for quite a while. And, uh, yeah, he's on the show. Obviously, he okay. has no idea whether he's going to be on the final in March. I think that's early March. Or whether he'll last that long. I'm, 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 I'm voting for him winning. Right. OK. I mean, that is interesting because, um, you know, Chemi Alcott, who's been on the show a bunch of times, did very well on Dancing on Ice. Graham Bell was on it uh, as well. I interviewed uh, him about that it, because it's live. It's not like one of these things that's been filmed like, uh, you know, Who Dares Wins, where they filmed it ages ago and they have to kind of keep it under wraps. It goes from week to week. So, yeah, I guess that mucks up his winter. He doesn't know how long he's going to be on it and uh, when he's going to be available again. So what he has said is, this, <laughs> um, he said, as soon as he knows, we'll get a date in the diary and if not it'll be next year okay well that's brilliant dan let's have a little listen to uh, what eddie had to say when i met him at the uh, birmingham show right very excited i'm here with uh, eddie the eagle uh, edwards at the uh, birmingham show how are you i'm very well thank you it's a beautiful day out there it's lovely and cold it's ready to snow that's right the cold side of things <laughs> is good because hopefully we'll get through the door now you're about to be on stage with chemi she's going to yes. be uh, interviewing you but we were just you know swapping notes 24 years ago, I think it was, when that script for the Eddie the Eagle movie, you know, was first put in place. Yeah? That's right. That's right. I signed the deal 24 years ago. I sat down with the scriptwriters for a whole week, went through my life story in very fine detail. And uh, they came up with a script. And then about 15 years later, they finally made it. 
So. Yeah, and then it, it eventually only got in. When did it get to the screens? Uh, 2016, seven years ago. Yeah, and uh, you know, during the making of it, I think you did Taron Edgerton sit down with you? And yeah, uh, well, I went to meet him before they started filming because he wanted to get an idea of my accent and mannerisms and things. And uh, and then I met Hugh Jackman as well and met them on set and watched them film a couple of the scenes. And then I just let them get on with it. And they did a wonderful job. I've seen the film 158 times. You're joking? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. I think I've seen a few films a lot of times, but that is good. So, well, you know every scene of it, and even even the bit where um, you're uh, uh, encouraged to think about Bo Derek uh, yes, when you're right. jumping. Oh yes, I always get encouraged to think about those kind of images when I'm ski jumping. It it helps to relax the mind. Cool. Well, I look forward to listening to your interview with Chemi a little bit later. Thanks Thank a lot, you. Eddie. Cheers. Oh, I always enjoy uh, chatting with Eddie. He's a really very entertaining guy. And, uh, you know, his sessions at those shows were uh, completely full uh, for all of them. Now, feedback time. I enjoy all feedback about the show. I like to know what you think, especially about our different features. So uh, please contact me on social at Ski Podcast or by email skipodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank everybody who's contacted me about why Canadian airports start with a Y. This is part of the conversation I had with Kendra in episode 190. Um, there were several responses, Michael, Michael Greenland, and in particular, I want to say thanks to Joe Childs. But the overall conclusion was, for those of you who are interested, is that when Canadian railroads and telegraph lines were first built, each station was assigned a two-letter Morse code. So YC was Calgary, VR was Vancouver, etc. And then when Canada started assigning three-letter codes to airports, uh, they put a Y in front to create that airport code. Or alternatively, it could be that the Y stands for yes, meaning that that airport had a radio station. Anyway, I'm going to put a link into the show notes so you can find out more about that if you want to. We've also had some other feedback. Uh, uh, Bob in CH on Snowhead said the Bodhi interview, which is number 189, great. Super interesting guy. Uh, Liv uh, said on Facebook, I've been listening to your amazing podcast, especially love the episode with the ski companies talking about sustainability. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes about that one. Ruth uh, very kindly bought me a coffee. Thank you for all the great content. Uh, it's been keeping me sane on many long drives recently. I appreciate all the work that goes into the episodes. And Michael also bought me a coffee. Absolutely loving your podcast. Your guest reviews and stories are fantastic. Make for a really interesting and informative listen. And finally, Joe Childs, who is uh, telling me about the airports in Canada, said, thanks for all the info you share on the ski podcast. I'm still working my way through the earlier recordings and finding great stuff. Uh, and we have still loads more feedback to cover. I'm going to include some more in episode 193. So if you do like the podcast, there's three things you can do to help. Just give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, that actually genuinely helps other listeners find us. You can subscribe. So if you're listening now and you haven't subscribed, just subscribe. And then that way, every episode will land into your uh, inbox. And uh, Or you can book your ski hire with Intersport Rent using the code Ski Podcast or take the link in the show notes. Uh, you can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at the Ski Podcast. Uh, but for now, I'd like to thank uh, Intersport for sponsoring the show and thank my guest today. Lou, thanks very much. You're very welcome. And you're very welcome on a ski safari. You've got 10 places left. Come and join us. All right, 10 places left. Get in there quick. And Dan, thank you very much as well. Great to chat. Thank you to both of you. And finally, listener, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.